Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Fear. We know all about that here, don't we? It's why we're here. We want to enjoy some nice, controllable, and safe fear that we can play with for a set period of time and then leave it safely behind. We all share fear of death and the unknown. As Bukowski said, that shared experience should bring us together. Because death is coming for all of us. Me. You. All of us. The world has an ultimate plan for us, and it's our own demise. The world really doesn't need any help with that. Maybe it comes in the form of an invisible virus that crawls inside of you and literally chokes you to death while you lay there in terror, unable to escape. Or maybe it comes in the form of someone in power, someone you should be able to trust, someone who's supposed to protect you from situations that will shorten your time on this planet and who instead crawls on top of you and literally chokes you to death. It's a tragedy when it's the former and it's a crime when it's the latter. We need to be better than this. The world doesn't need anyone's help to deliver death. We need each other's help. We need to look out for one another and try to keep the world from cutting short the little time that we have here. We have an amazing community here. Amazing authors, voice actors, artists, composers, and of course, you, dear listener. We're all different. And despite that, actually, no, because of that, we have a lot of fun here. We avoid judgment of each other based on who we love, what we look like, or what we believe, and we come together on what we fear. I'm honored to work with so many amazing creative people from such diverse backgrounds and to be able to consistently deliver something I love to such a diverse and supportive audience. I truly and deeply thank those of you who enjoy and support the show and the artists I get to work with to make it happen. This show is about coming together and having fun. We all need to have places where we can escape the madness of the world, the 24-hour news cycle, and politics, and the Wicked Library will continue to be, well, a library, a place that is, by its nature, a place of knowledge and inclusivity set outside the world we inhabit every day. I only ask that we all, as a powerful and diverse community, do our part to put forward kindness and understanding at every opportunity. That's the contract we have if you want to continue to visit this library. Be kind, listen, learn, and support and appreciate one another. Now, today's author is Crystal Connor, an amazingly talented author of horror and science fiction who Nelson and I had the pleasure of meeting at the World Horror Convention in Atlanta back in 2015. Crystal wrote today's tale just for us, and we're honored to share it with you. 
Today's storyteller is Denise Michelle Johnson, an amazing actress you've heard on the show several times before, and with whom I had the pleasure of performing at the Live Wicked Library show in Atlanta last October. Today's story is scored by our resident composer, Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. Today's dark tale is one of searching for meaning, understanding one's personal history, and dealing with the monsters who lurk just below the surface. But it's also a powerful message of kindness, compassion, and looking out for one another. It's an unintentionally timely tale written by a black author and told by a black storyteller. Let's get wicked with The Heirloom. As a black person, native to the United States, with everything around me being European-centered, trying to find traces of my heritage, of who my great-great-great-great-grandparents were, the customs they practiced, and the things my ancestors believed in, oftentimes resembles the adventures of Indiana Jones, Robert Langdon, and Ben Gates, as I, too, am now somewhat of a symbolist, historian, archaeologist, codebreaker, and treasure hunter. My family roots were planted deep within the rich loam of Africa. Leaves blown from these trees mingled with plants in France. These Afro-French saplings made their way onto boats sailing from Mexico. Their seeds, scattered deep with the South American continent, eventually found their way back to sea, where they bobbed and drifted through the warm Caribbean waters before coming to a brief rest to cover themselves in the fertile soils of the coastal edges of Spain. Because of this, my travels have taken me all over the Northern Hemisphere, and I am dangerously flirting with financial ruin. But I'm not going to stop, because the grail I chase is the most holy of all, and the treasure I seek is a sense of self, of where I come from, of who I truly am. The tiny pink house I rented sat right on the beach as promised, but the pictures didn't quite tell the truth of its appearance. No filter could ever come close to the way these places look in person. For lack of a better word, this place was paradise. There were about 120 people living here, but they were on the other side. Looking at this small island on Google Maps with the help of enhanced satellite images did nothing to give you the appreciation of scale. A brisk seven-mile walk into town was not so invigorating when you had to traverse a narrow, twisting trail through a dark, thick, and tangled jungle adorned with the bones of small animals hanging from trees, ornate spider webs the size of your face, and ominous scurrying sounds that you couldn't identify in the sweltering heat of the tropics in order to get there. I've been away from home for almost six months, and here, on this island, for about 27 days now, I think. I dropped everything and jumped on a plane after months of research revealed that my great-grandfather had children out of wedlock and that I had blood relatives living in the Caribbean that could possibly shed more light on our family than some mail-order DNA test. The keys I've been hopping through are pretty remote. The aisle is powered by three gasoline generators. They're on the other side of the island, and they aren't always running. 
I have a solar charger, but because there's no signal, I don't remember the last time I turned my phone on. It does me no good. So I've simply lost track of time. The resemblance of the woman in the picture I was given on the second island I visited was so close to my grandmother that it was startling. In fact, she looked so much like my grandmother and her siblings that I had no doubt that I was looking at a photograph of my long-lost great-aunt. She was so elusive that for the first few weeks into the search, I was beginning to fear that I had embarked on a wild goose chase until, on a quay just north of here, someone recognized her picture. I was told that she lived in the way of the saints and that she was a high priestess in the sacred syncretic traditions that had grown from the slave trade in Cuba. As the chase continued, I met more and more people who knew who she was. At first, I was excited. But then, with each new inquiry, my feelings of elation began to wane. I assumed that my aunt was a healer. The truth revealed that she was not. While I wasn't quite hunting a monster, as some wanted me to believe, at the very least, I had to admit that I was looking for a very dangerous and vengeful woman. I met people who felt that she was so nefarious that they flat out stopped speaking to me. Abruptly withdrawing from my presence when they realized there was a possibility that she and I were related. At first, I was shocked by what I was being told. Then, with each new tale, I became offended and defensive. For a woman to become vengeful, she must first be scorned. And I wanted to know what had happened to her. What had been done to her. Now more than ever, I needed answers. Which is how I ended up on this island. The wrong island. Apparently, the last man I had spoken with was attempting to save me from myself. And as a result, I've been beached here waiting for the ferryman for the last month. I mean, I think it's been a month. But I'm not sure. I've been here so long that I've been praying to God for the boatman's safety, hoping he hadn't perished in one of the storms that had angered the sea. The people here know who I am, who I'm looking for, and that we might be related, but take care of me nonetheless. They all came to help me clean out my little hut that I was now occupying. The men repaired the shutters and patched a hole in the roof, and the women set up the line on which I could dry my clothes. The handmade cleaning products left the small beach house smelling like coconut oil and tropical fruit. At the end of the day, a little ritual was performed, which no doubt was meant to bless my temporary home. Every time I went to their side of the island, they were happy to see me. If I wasn't seen in a day or two, someone would come by and check on me to make sure I was still okay. Preparations were being made for some type of festival, and while I was sure I'd be welcomed, I wasn't going to participate in the celebrations. I really didn't enjoy walking through the jungle, especially at night. The natives weren't the only ones who were happy to see me every time I came around. These damn-ass mosquitoes were glad to see me, too. 
and looked like I had the chicken pox. Of course, they would make a place for me for the night, but being purposely sent to the wrong island, not knowing when the ferryman would return, and the current state of my physical appearance pulled me into a depression. I just kind of wanted to be left alone, even though it was probably the last thing I needed. I suspected that someone would come in the morning, because it had been a few days since I visited. I managed to lift my sad little self from the hammock. I meant to write in my journal, as I did every night before turning in, but decided to go against the norm and take a swim instead. The unbelievably crystal clear blue water was refreshingly cool against my inflamed, itchy skin. I swam out about the length of an Olympic-sized swimming pool before I took a break and just floated for a while, stargazing. I fell asleep. If it weren't for the rumble of the generator, I would have floated out to open sea. Startled, I woke and found myself further from the shore than I was comfortable with. And to make matters worse, it was getting dark. As I stretched myself across the surface of the water in a full front crawl stroke, the theme song from Jaws started playing in my head. Although there were no great whites swimming in these warm waters, this was the home of the unpredictable and easily provoked bull shark. The music in my head neared a crescendo. I couldn't help myself. I looked down, caught completely off guard. I stopped swimming. It wasn't the maw of a large carnivorous fish that piqued my interest. Burrowed in the shallow sea floor was a large blue hole. I dove beneath the surface and swam down to take a closer look. The swirling sand around the edges was reminiscent of water draining from a tub. I stopped my descent. There was a flickering of movement within the depths. If my mind was playing tricks on me, I could rest assured that my burning lungs were not. It was time to surface. Now. I breached the water, gasping for air, and panicked when I noticed how fast the sun was falling. The darkness on my side of the island was complete, and I was momentarily disoriented and didn't know which way to go. From the corner of my eye, I saw the flickering of lights and knew the villagers were making their way through the jungle. Comforted by the sight of them, my strokes were leisurely, until more and more people spilled onto the beach. Seeing me in the water, they became frantic. They were jumping up and down, running along the shore, motioning for me to get out of the water. Behind me, there was a splash. On the beach, pandemonium. I swam as fast as I could. I swam. I ignored the cramp on my side and prayed to every god that I knew for help as the villagers on the shore seemed to do the same. With about 20 feet to go, I felt something cold and smooth slither against my belly. The scream that emerged from deep within my soul was pushed from my mouth and the force of my whole body. I had no idea what I was attempting to outswim, but I knew that I wasn't going to be able to. I was about to die. Seemingly reading my mind, the people on the beach could barely contain themselves. Just as I was about to abandon all hope to submit myself to the inevitable, ten of the villagers ran into the water and began swimming out to meet me, risking their lives to save mine. With renewed vigor, I found the strength to swim faster. 
Within moments, I collided with those who'd come to rescue me. Despite the exotic accents, communicating was never a problem. But now that they were in such a state of distress, they reverted back to their mother tongue. I couldn't understand what was being said to me. As they pulled me to my feet and dragged me ashore, I looked over my shoulder. The waters behind me were starting to calm, and the people on the beach began to match its stillness. Four men, an elder, and three older teens stood shoulder to shoulder with their torches aimed toward the sea. The minute my rescuers left me to the strength of my own legs, I collapsed onto the warm sand. The sentries never took their eyes off the sea. The tension-filled calmness from everyone gathered there was the last thing I was aware of before my consciousness escaped me. I woke up suddenly. All my thoughts were in high definition, every sense urging me to claw my way to standing. The noises of the day in full swing, the gentle cacophony of clothes lapping in the wind, laughing children, the soft tide against the shore, and the sizzle of fish being cooked over an open flame was what calmed me. I crashed back into a lying position. I was in the hammock, with no recollection of how I got there. The burst of strenuous physical activity spurred on by fear-laced adrenaline left me feeling sore and exhausted. It took me several long yawns and a deep stretch before I found the strength and will to sit up. When I did so, I noticed that the dry clothes I was wearing weren't the ones I had on when I was pulled from the sea. I had less than a minute to wonder who had seen me unclothed before my empty stomach responded to the fragrant air that held the promise of hot food. I shrugged as I slipped on my sandals. I assumed that it was most likely one of the women who had redressed me. Besides, I knew I didn't have anything to worry about. Even before last night's display of heroism, I knew that the people on the island meant me no harm. I walked out of my cottage and froze terror-stricken, when I saw children playing in the water. I ran to the beach, pulling the two children closest to the shore from the edge of the sea. The other four were beyond reach. They were playing in the frothy white water of the growing waves. I was beyond astonished, as a young mother gently pulled her kids from my grasp. She hadn't had much exposure to the world that surrounded her, so as of yet, There wasn't any need for her to learn to speak English. Yet, woven between the words of language I didn't understand, there was a repeated phrase, Only at dark. Only at dark. She nodded her head, asking if I understood. Then, after firmly planting a kiss on each forehead, she watched with a mother's eye as the two ran back out to sea, calling after them, most likely telling them something along the lines of, Be careful, play nice, or don't hit your brother. She linked her arm in mine and led me to the sandy tropical campfire where another woman was removing hot fish from a skewer. The air was sweet and the breeze was cool, a perfect day on an island in paradise. We sat in the sand, bathing in sunshine. Yet, the children. Though I was hungry, After a few meager bites, I couldn't eat. 
Watching them frolicking in the sea from the stealthy edges of my vision chipped away my precarious feelings of tranquility. I felt the panic within me softly growing and fading, as if it were attempting to synchronize itself with the sway of the tide. My growing apprehension over watching children splashing around in the yard of some type of nocturnal leviathan completely obliterated my appetite. You kids, get off my lawn! Had a whole different meaning when the threat was issued by a monster. I tried to remain calm because, after all, a mother knows best and those were her children. If they weren't worried, then I shouldn't be either. I reminded myself that the youngest women among us had said, only at dark. It was the middle of the day, so I had nothing to worry about. Those kids were perfectly safe, but after witnessing the sheer pandemonium on display last night, my mind refused to allow that logic to sink in. The glances were no longer stolen. Now, I was staring. I bolted to my feet, and with my arms folded tightly across my chest, I tapped my foot furiously in the sand, glaring at the children who were playing in the deep. It was warm out, but I was shaking, and a cold sweat had begun to glisten its way across my furrowed brow. I wanted them out of the water. I wanted them out now. The chattering behind me had stopped. I turned around to face the women who sat looking up at me in silence. I would have been embarrassed had I not been so scared. I was asked if I was okay. I told them I would feel better if they made their kids get out of the water. I was told that they were fine and reminded once again, only at dark. But what if they woke it up? I felt that was a valid question, since I believed that the laughter of the children could be heard for miles. They all looked up at me in stunned silence, thinking that I must be crazy. I sat back down and tried to feed off of the calmness of the women, attempted to explain to myself why everything would turn out all right. Surely any parent would be more protective of their own flesh and blood than a complete stranger. Plus, there was no trace of the fear that had contorted their faces into masks of terror that they wore last night. This was their home. No one knew of the dangers that circled the island better than the people who lived there. They said it only comes out at night. They assured me that their kids were okay. They said everything was fine. I tried to believe them. I desperately wanted to believe them. But my nerves were completely frayed and my wild imagination was quick to construct elaborate rationalizations of the certain doom that lurked just beneath their feet. I was invited to spend a few days on the populated side of the island, but I declined. I wasn't trying to be ungracious. God knows I didn't want to be alone. But the very last thing I wanted to do was offend anyone, which is why I felt like shit when the woman who offered me a place in her home stood up and walked away. But I couldn't think of anything to say as I watched her fade into the thick, tangled jungle. I wish I could have told her how frustrated I felt over being led astray, how restless I was as the days went on and on 
and I couldn't do what I had left my home to do. I wished I had just blurted out how much their kindness and hospitality made me feel welcomed and wanted. Most of all, I wished I could have told her that, after becoming abruptly aware of the sea monster dwelling just off the shore, that the only thing I wanted to do was leave, because I was scared. Everyone knew that the ferryman's vessel was too big to dock on the other side. I wished that I could have just explained that I didn't want to miss him when he came back, which everyone kept saying should be any day now. But I couldn't bring myself to say any of those things. I just stood up to keep her in my view for as long as possible. With a slight shake of my head, I retook my seat and closed my eyes, no longer able to watch the kids in the water. Yet, I was no better off because I could still hear them, and I was sure that the thing in the water heard them too. The long, leisurely day lazily stretched itself into evening, and the women who kept me company began gathering their children and belongings. As everyone was getting ready to leave, the woman who had left earlier approached. A slow smile spread across my face when I saw her. I was so relieved that I wanted to cry. She wasn't alone, and she wasn't empty-handed. None of them were. Her husband carried a large wooden slab. Her son lugged a heavy-looking wooden pole, and she brought with her a basket full of food. I ran to her in tears and draped my arms around her shoulders. She pressed her free hand into the small of my back, drawing me close, and for a moment, I just stayed within her embrace. Once again, I was told that I had nothing to worry about as long as I stayed out of the water at night. But she knew that simple reassurance wasn't enough to ease my fears, and this is why she returned with her family. I tried to apologize for upsetting her. She wouldn't accept it, telling me I had nothing to be sorry for, while wiping away the streaming tears of gratitude that ran down my face. Her husband showed me how to place a piece of thick wood against the door and to use the pole to reinforce it. After I showed him that I could bar the door as instructed, we closed the shutters from the outside of the hut. With nothing left to be done, they wished me a good night and took their leave. With the heavy frame, I locked the door. Using the wooden beam, I set the bolt. No one was getting in unless I let them in. While it was dark outside, that wasn't going to be happening. I threw on a heavy sweater I dug out of my duffel bag. Then, sitting down at the small table, I lit the candles. I sat there, safe and secure, for a whole ten minutes before pulling the cloth off of my basket to reveal the goodies inside. The aroma of food assaulted me from all sides, and I smiled as my stomach grumbled. I removed the small rum cake and set it aside. After licking my sticky fingers, I pulled out the grapes, then the bread, and finally the grilled chicken. The scent of the meat made me slightly lightheaded and giddy. A secure din and food. 
I hadn't had anything to eat since picking at my breakfast, and now I was really looking forward to eating, and no one or nothing was going to interrupt my gourmet meal. I savored every bite of the incredibly savory, succulent meat, relished in the every burst of juice from the large, firm grapes. I allowed myself to be swooned with every piece of warm, soft, buttery bread. I closed my eyes as I chewed. As I reached for my water bottle, I heard a quiet thud against the wall that was right in front of me. The one that faced the sea. Then there was silence. The dread that crept over me was like an icy chill numbing my brain. In this stricken state of mind, I could only think of one thing. The sea and the monster that lived there. A muscle twitched involuntarily at the corner of my right eye. My mouth formed a rigid grimace. I didn't dare move an inch. Every fiber of my being was committed to one goal. Listening for the slightest of audible clues that would further alert me to whatever it was that lurked just beyond my makeshift fortress. Try as I might, the only thing I was really aware of was the sound of my own heart viciously beating against the cage of my chest, like it was trying to escape. My fists were clenched so tightly that my nails pierced the palms of my hands. I didn't realize how deep they dug, until I looked down and saw blood. My adrenaline had surged to the point that I couldn't feel pain. I wanted to run to the safety of the proverbial hills or grab something that I could use as a weapon. But instead, I remained where I was. The thud came again, this time to the left of me. I snapped my head in that direction. And after a pause, I craned my neck to look at the only barrier between me and the outside. My hands started shaking, and my eyes watered while I scrutinized the security of my barrier. I could hear it coming. One thing was certain. Whatever it was, it was big. The soft rustling of its footsteps in the sand sounded like a threatening whisper. If I was going to do something, now would be the time. But I was frozen in place. Whatever was outside seemed to be getting closer and closer. And I couldn't move. Suddenly, everything went silent. My body felt hot and sweat started trickling down my neck. There was something on the other side of the door. I couldn't hear my rapid breathing, but I could feel the oxygen flooding in and out of my lungs. Fear churned my stomach into tense cramps, engulfed my conscience, and knocked all other thoughts aside. In that moment, I was so scared I couldn't move, and that's what terrified me most of all. There was another tentative thud at the top of the door, followed by a slow clawing that 
dripped down the length of the door like rain falling towards the knob. My jaw dropped in a silent scream of horror, and my widened eyes traced the sound. Beneath the door, a shadow quickly moved across the narrow beam of moonlight. On the table, the candlelight swayed as if blown by a feeble breath. My breathing became erratic, rapidly shifting from deep to shallow and back again. I fought it. I fought the feeling of my body attempting to shut down completely. In the death throes, the light from the candles were weakening. I knew the flames would soon flicker out. As the light drained away, there was barely enough for even a shadow. Just then, in an instant, it was dark, and everything in the cabin was hidden. My ears became sharper, and my mind paranoid. Every snap of a twig was a predator. My mind started searching for ways to escape with all the methodology of a bouncing ball. And then reality set in. There was no way out of this house. No way out. I was absolutely trapped. I wasn't much of a fighter, and there was nowhere for me to run. I felt it then, building like an unstoppable runaway train from the pit of my stomach. Panic is a four-letter word. Yes, it is. I couldn't concentrate. My mind was firing out thoughts like a machine gun. Run! No, fight! Don't be stupid, hide! My whole entire body was covered in sweat. My internal argument was relentless as angry storm waves crashed against weary and weakening levees. Don't just sit there. Fucking do something! Hide? Where? Oh, dear God. I'm gonna die. Of course you're gonna fucking die. Pay attention, princess. Those people sacrificed you to their tropical god. What? Why would you think that? What the fuck's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? With me? Uh, oh, yes. We're so having this conversation. But first, let's talk about all the fucks that's wrong with you. I wouldn't even be here if it weren't for you. The words I exchanged with myself were fires of fury, smoldering with hate. The things I said to myself, vile. The negative thoughts in my head were so fast and disturbing that my brain tried to shut my body down, everything except for my heart, which felt like it was going to explode. But I fought it. I fought it because I had to. If I allowed myself to further firefall into the abyss of panic, I would surely die. The venomous voices in my head quieted. Then, another voice. This one, weighed with measured aggression, spoke up. Fighting isn't always physical. I knew that voice, because it was the smug tone I favored when I was about to decimate an opponent in a verbal sparring match. I truly thought that being barricaded within this cozy cottage till daybreak would keep me safe from a monster I believed was bound to the sea. Clearly, things had changed. A contingency was needed. 
and make no mistake about it, you were going to have to fight. A plan began to formulate. The chance I had to come out of this alive was a snowball's chance in hell. But a half of a chance is a fighting chance. I still had the option to remain still and be quiet enough to hide in that stillness. I would wait until dark and pray for dawn. The minute I realized this was my best course of action, I was draped beneath a tension-filled sense of tranquility. Yet, instead of being soothed, my senses became more heightened than they already were. There was a predator on the other side of the door, and I was prey. The truth of the matter was, I needed to be on edge and hyper-aware if I wanted to stay alive. There was another thud against the door, this time with feeling. Then it called out. The sound it made was straight out of Jurassic Park. The sharp, icy pain that shot down my spine like a bolt of lightning was so painful that I almost broke my vow of silence. I was glad that I didn't, because it was in that moment of my absolute stillness that God chose to send a revelation. This beast was not alone. On the other side of the cabin, its call was answered. Had I made the slightest of sounds, I wouldn't have heard it. From beneath the darkness, I heard the sounds of heavy limbs being dragged across the sand. Whatever it was, it was massive. I couldn't tell if it was feet or tail that was being hauled across the beach. Yet, as it approached, the closer it got, the panting and anticipation of fresh meat grew quieter and quieter. This changed things. As bad as it was, now it was worse. My situational awareness blossomed into a mushroom cloud. The wind seemed to have died because the palm trees ceased to rustle. In those frozen seconds, I could hear the sand shifting as things outside circled my hut in a counterclockwise motion, whispering to each other. I knew tensing against the shaking of my limbs was useless, but I did it instinctively, trying to suppress for a few more moments what I knew I could not. Even though my bones had no more strength and my muscles were all out of power, I wanted to hold this position for as long as it took. I knew if I passed out now, I would be as good as dead. My eyesight blurred, but not because tears were welling up. Everything became fuzzy. My limbs were no longer taking directions from my mind. The unthinkable happened. The world rushed by in a blur, and I knew the pain was coming. It went by fast, yet slow, almost suspended. As I fell, all I prayed was it would be with delicate femininity, a soft and quiet impact. I got neither. An involuntary oof escaped my lips. 
noise that I made when I hit the floor was as loud as the violent crumpling of cars in a collision. I felt my bones move in a way they shouldn't have. Now, the silence came from the predators. Like those who gazed into the eyes of Medusa, petrified by fear, I became stone. The silence from outside was deafening, unnatural, tactical, and deliberate. I strained to listen, but their auditory fortress was all-encompassing, rendering any logical thought or conclusion impossible. I did the only thing I was capable of doing. Nothing. There was a suggestion of movement beyond the door. It was formless and indistinct, a piece of shadow shifting. I had no idea how long I lay there on the floor, anticipating my own death and praying that it would be quick. Time took its own time. I felt every beat of my heart as it pounded upon the cold floor I was lying on. Time went on and on. As I was seriously considering that today might be my last tomorrow, I realized just how much of it I had wasted. There was a murmur, or maybe I just thought there was. Every inch of me hurt, and I'm not sure when or why I hadn't noticed it until now, but my body had curled into something beetle. Something primeval. All the while, the pain burned and radiated like an unpleasant warmth. I wanted to cry out, but I didn't dare. I don't know when I became aware of the dawn. I had been waiting for the morning for so long that I barely believed my eyes when the sun crept beneath the door and squeezed itself through the slivers of the shutters until the inside of the cabin began to glow. But still, I refused to move, even to ease the pain. In the half-light of this morning, something felt wrong. It's quiet! Too quiet! The leafy palms were bereft of noise. Every murmur and rustle had been stolen away in the night, or was hiding from the monsters that could now be seen in the full light of day. There was a soft creak, just loud enough for me to hear. Sweet Jesus, they're still out there. I thank God that there was a door and four walls that separated me from them. My gratitude came too soon. A wall bulged inward. Instantly, I was on my feet. Before the wall had a chance to snap back into its rigid form, a second attempt was made. It was only a matter of time before they managed to break through. They were going to get in which meant I needed to get out. My heart beat as fast as a semi-automatic rifle could fire, and the surge of adrenaline was demanding that I run. Right now. Now! I yanked away the security bar just as the wood behind me splintered. I clawed the slab away and pulled the door inward. Bright, blinding light 
flooded through the breached wall behind me. I burst from the cabin as if shot through the barrel of a cannon. I ran over loose rocks and sharp seashells with bare feet. Behind me, I heard the assured footfalls of apex predators. I ran further and further. The woods began to darken as if the night had second thoughts about resting. Twigs scraped my face and tugged at my hair. I wasn't on the path. There was no familiar sight. With my wide open eyes, I moved with pointless speed. I didn't know where I was going. I was already lost. I felt the screaming of my joints, but willed my muscles to go far beyond what exercise could ever demand. Conditioning from a treadmill with a stopwatch will never train you for situations like this. This was my body and brain in full survival mode, and it was nothing but pain. I hurled over a fallen tree. The bracken and brambles lashed out and tore my legs until there was just a cut and bleeding at the bottoms of my feet. The humidity of the region was like a wet duvet, heavy and oppressive. The salt from my sweat stinging my eyes. I heard the snapping of their jaws. The rancid scent of their musk was stomach churning. I pushed myself beyond all endurance. The next thing I heard brought me to a complete stop. The sound of sliding across gravel, followed by sounds of retreating footsteps. I was so caught off guard that I whirled around to see what was wrong. The dust from the kicked up sand drifted past me while I tried to work out what I was seeing. The aquatic fiends that had chased me into the jungle were the same size as the largest breed of dog. They ran on webbed cloven hooves and their powerful tails looked reptilian. I couldn't see their faces as they fled on large muscular legs. But as big as they were and the fact that there were two of them, it was frighteningly obvious that I was nothing to fear. I asked myself a question that I really didn't want to know the answer to. What were they running from? They sure as hell weren't running from me, especially since a few breaths ago, I was running from them. Behind me, something scurried. Was this the thing that they ran from? Logic was telling me to run. Adrenaline was telling me to run. Every horror movie that I had ever seen in my whole entire life was telling me that this was the moment I should run. Yet this council of common sense was vetoed. Not by fear or panic, but by the thing that ultimately killed the cat. I did the last thing I shouldn't have done. I turned around. From the shadows stepped a figure shrouded beneath a cloak as dark as night. It was a woman with skin like molten lava. Her black diamond eyes, like the gates of hell, sparkled over a nose pierced with a golden loop. Fiery, twisted hair poured over her shoulders like red-hot filaments. A necklace of bones lay across her neck, and from her waist dangled a belt made of small human 
skulls. Her cane wasn't meant to aid in walking. It was to assist her in magic. And the skull atop it was just slightly larger than the ones at her hip. Eye contact was made. And then the jungle around me slowly transformed into a lethal playground. The sky plunged into an ominous darkness, and the palm branches stretched out in front of me, forming a cavern of distorted mazes and optical illusions. Mesmerized, I watched her poisonous red apple lips curl into her cheeks. Her malicious beam framed the whitest of teeth. Her smile was the most terrifying and beautiful thing I had ever seen. Watching it, a vile pain spread throughout my chest like a deadly infection. Instead of running or screaming, I just stood there, gawking. The long nails of her slender and sensual hands were manicured with red-black polish, and she beckoned with fingers that rapidly faded to only a suggestion of form. My knees felt like rubber after so recently running for my life, and I was surprised that I still had the strength to stand, let alone move. My mind beseeched me to stop walking, and I wanted to obey, but I no longer was in control of my body. She was. The closer I got to her, the harder it was to breathe, and now I was gulping selfish breaths of air. Helpless, I walked toward her, my feet dragging noisily on the carpet of lifeless leaves and broken seashells, each step triggering a rush of pain in both my chest and bare feet. In spite of the realization that I was most likely gasping my last breaths of life, I stumbled eagerly forward, welcoming death with open arms. I want to stay here with her forever. The thought became a desire, and my insides blazed with an intensity to make it possible. The bewitchment was abruptly broken with a sudden sharp pain to the back of my head. All at once, my legs ceased to travel forward. The scenery turned into a blur, like a poorly shot scene in an action movie, as I was pulled from my feet. I would only realize, days upon days later, after replaying this over and over again in my memory, that the glint I was now seeing was several dozen coins of silver being thrust past my face. In the blink of an eye, the smoke and mirrors of her spell faded, and the jungle again looked the way it was supposed to. It was the ferryman! The pain I felt was the handful of hair that was grabbed when he was reaching for my shirt collar. As the throne's silver found its mark, the beautiful woman was instantly transformed into a beast of fangs and claws before dissipating as a black mist 
that was blown away by the breeze of the Caribbean. They've come back, he said. But they told me they only come out at night. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about them. We got to move, girl. This ain't gonna hold. There was too much going on. The rapid transition from one nightmare to the next left me confused and disoriented. There was nothing for my mind to hold on to. I examined the dirt, the direction of the sun, and strained my ears for any sound. I could hear the birds and the soft surf, and I smiled. The narrator and navigator of my mind had two entirely different ideas about what the hell was going on, and I didn't have the mental capacity to follow the heated debate. My world was spinning, and all I wanted to do was sit down. He grabbed the front of my shirt and started running. My toes dragged behind me as he pulled me along. We, well, he, was running so fast that a few times my feet completely left the ground, leaving me to drift behind him like a low-flying, heavy kite. We burst through the tropical forest, back to my side of the beach, and I had to squint my eyes against the bright sun. I saw the boat we were running towards, and then I saw the hut, and burst into uncontrollable tears. The small, boutique beach house now resembled something that had been through a war. It was obliterated. The wall facing the sea was completely caved in, and the roof had collapsed within the structure. The front door appeared to have been blown out from the inside, and there were deep claw marks on the exterior walls. What was left stood in spite of itself, defying both gravity and the ferocious, nightmarish beasts that had destroyed it. He literally flung me into the boat where I landed atop my duffel bag. I realized that upon seeing the destruction, he must have gone inside looking for me, removing my bags when I was nowhere to be found. I was struggling to sit up when the engine of the little craft roared to life, and I stared at him, questioningly, as we sped from the dock. But I was the very least of his concerns. With eyes as wide as a flat screen, his only goal in that moment was getting us away from the island. The perfume of the salty waters was carried on the wings of the wind. The fine spray from the sea splashed up over the bow to spritz and cool our hot, sweat-drenched skin. Racing toward the open water seemed to have a transformative effect on my captain. The fear that was painted on his face just a moment before was blown away from the landscape of his features. Since he was visibly calmer, I thought that he would be ready to talk. Who was she? What was she? Were those aqua dogs her guardians? Where did they come back from? And what did you mean when you said it wouldn't hold? What did you do? Wait, if it's not going to hold... The villagers! Are they going to be okay? I asked the question so fast that I hadn't paused long enough for him to get a word in. But even after I stopped talking, he didn't answer me. At the helm, something ahead held his attention. I turned to look. We were approaching another little island. 
The coastline lay softly under the early morning light. It was curved, as if drawn by an artist's hand, and it was more of a thick line of white gold sand than an isle. After the hellish nightmare I was just rescued from, the green trees seemed radiant. The string of small, cheerful houses were painted all different colors, and the fishing boats that had been pulled ashore had just as many hues. Scores of brown-bodied children and two dogs waited in the rolling sea foam arches, waving to us as we sailed by. I found myself smiling and waving back. The little village seemed to be aglow as it stood vibrant in the golden rays that fell unfettered through the clear sky. In the next instant, I was terrified. We hadn't been underway that long, and I couldn't help but wonder if they would soon be under attack by the things that stormed the island we just left. But before I had a chance to say what was undoubtedly written all over my face, the ferryman was telling me about the village and the people who called it home. The tremor in his voice from this morning was no longer there. His rugged face shone in the watery sunlight, and the tone in which he spoke to me was light and casual, as if the hell we started the day with didn't happen. As a joyous clamor of children at play and barking dogs faded into the distance, I rephrased the questions asking them all again with just one. What were those things? He shifted his focus from the current to me, his eyes narrowing while doing so. The judicial way in which he observed me was unsettling, almost hypnotizing. Deep within his eyes was a terrifying tale, which I could only guess was about the angry goddess wielding magic so powerful it was hard to imagine. But the expression on his face revealed that it was a secret that his lips were intending on keeping. You already know too much, was all he said. My jaw dropped. His response was the fuel for more questions, and I could tell just by the way he was looking at me that he wasn't going to answer any of them. My anger surprised me, but by the grace of God, I held my tongue. After a few moments of silence, he asked me a question of his own. Where are we going next? Cow Island? What? No, take me back to New Providence. I'm fucking done here. I want to go home. I was on the verge of furious tears. He flipped open his compass, shifted the rudder, and changed our course. I drew my knees in and put my elbows on my thighs and held my head in the palm of my hands. What a night. I didn't mean to lash out like that, but under the circumstance, could I really be blamed? I was angry, scared, confused, and tired. Not just tired, exhausted. And the level of my exhaustion teetered dangerously on the precipice of insanity. I had so many questions, and none of them would be answered. I realized I hadn't even thanked this man for saving my life. And the truth of it was, I didn't even know how. I shook my head, and fresh tears ran down into my arms. Once the boat leveled out, the ferryman covered me 
with a thick blanket. I looked up at him with so much gratitude that nothing needed to be said. After he squeezed my shoulder, I lay on the bench and used my duffel bag as a pillow. Through my closed lashes, the sun rays still shone through. The lapping of the waves was as good as any ticking clock, marking out the time into neat little portions. With each one, a little more tension left my limbs, and I had a little more hope. I dared to believe that my hellish ordeal was finally over, and I was indeed safe. Opening my eyes and rolling into a more comfortable position, I rested my head on the side of the boat and watched the moving water. We were traveling faster now. The flat sea stretched out in all directions. The sun was higher in the sky and was scattering jewels across its surface. Seagulls wheeled overhead, carried by the cool ocean breeze. The bobbing boat was felt with every part of my being, and it was making my eyes feel heavier and heavier. Slowly at first, then all at once, I was dragged into the oblivion of sleep. As I roused from a heavy slumber, I was first aware of the coolness of the air and its familiar quintessential fragrance of the seashore. My eyes lazily rolled open, glazed over with the remnants of a dream already forgotten. I thought my slumber would be disturbed with flashbacks and nightmares. But it wasn't. I slept well. In fact, I'd slept better than I had slept in a while. A layer of salt dusted my eyelashes, and I could taste it on my lips. My clothes felt as damp as a flower in the dew of the dawn, but surprisingly, I wasn't cold. I sat up slowly, stretched and yawned, then let all of my senses explore my surroundings. The gentle waves scattered the evening sun, like the sequins shed from a costume that lay scattered about on a parade route from the Carnival of Brazil. I turned to the ferryman and smiled. He acknowledged me with a wink, and then continued his banter with a man in a smaller boat. I leaned over the side and submerged my hand. The water moved softly around my outstretched fingers, caressing coolly, eddying in its wake. I pulled my hand out and watched the drips, transparent and not at the same time, fall back into the saline below, each one swiftly hallowed by ever-growing rings. The aroma of fried fish from a dockside eatery made my stomach rumble, and the boisterous, discordant melody of those who earned their livelihoods down at the docks or from the sea was like music to my ears. I was thinking to myself that I could probably stay here forever until, with an ice-cold shiver down my spine, I remembered why I was leaving. The ferryman slowly maneuvered his vessel to the part of the dock where I would be disembarking. Earlier, I couldn't find the words to thank him for saving my life, so now I used currency. The sum was such that it took him by surprise. He just stared at me, open-mouthed. His brain formulated no thoughts other than to register that he was shocked. He closed his mouth 
then looked at his toes before glancing back up to catch my eye. He was at a loss for words, but after what he had to do to save me, there was nothing to be said. I surprised him again when I wrapped my arms around him, and after a moment, he squeezed me back. There was nothing said at the end of our embrace. With tears in our eyes, I took my leave of him, and he prepared to return to sea. When I pulled myself out of the boat and climbed up onto the pier, I noticed a man. People were sitting on benches, gazing out to sea. Children ran, and some rode bikes up and down the floating wooden walkway with a multitude of various-sized dogs trotting right beside them. Families mulled about with cameras at the ready. He was just standing there, and he was standing all alone. I slung my duffel bag over my shoulder and started walking towards the cabs. I was less than a foot away from him when he blocked my path. His dark, locked hair tumbled over his shoulders like a fountain of molten obsidian, and his wolfish amber eyes were threaded with scarlet. He looked down at me and addressed me by name. I stood there, stunned, since I had never met this man before. He explained that my aunt, the woman I had been looking for, had died. The ton of grief that slammed into me for a person I didn't know was surprising, confusing, and unexplainable. I burst into tears. How? I wasn't talking about her death. The question I was asking was, how did this woman know who I was? How did she know that I was looking for her? How did this man know where to find me? And how was he connected to my aunt and thus to me? He looked at me and said nothing. More questions that I would never have answers to. She wanted you to have this. The weight of it surprised me. It was as heavy as a bag of potatoes. Before I could even ask, he had already turned his back to me and was walking away. The leather-bound book was as big as an unabridged dictionary. The embossing upon the cover was a magical emblem of African origin. A note, written in beautiful penmanship on the inside cover, was the first thing I found when I opened it. It read, I always knew you'd be the one to come looking for me. I scanned the crowd for the man who had given this to me, but he was long gone. I sat on the edge of the bench and absently flipped through the pages. It took a minute for me to register what it was I was looking at. Everything in this book was handwritten generations of authors. I delved deeper, and then the whole world around me faded from view. Drawn in pencil was a full-page illustration of the woman the ferryman had rescued me from. Everything around me slowly transformed into a lethal playground. 
the sky plunged into an ominous darkness, and the boardwalk stretched out in front of me, forming a cavern of distorted mazes and optical illusions. With a trembling hand, I turned the page and began to read. Hello, kiddies. So, you want access to the Wicked Archives, do you? Well, it takes money to keep the lights on and keep our beasties fed. Trust me, you don't want them hungry. They might just start eating the writers and then where would we be? Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary and pledge your support to the show. For $2 a month, I'll give you a key to our collection of classic episodes. For $5 a month, I'll let you hear the bonus stories before the rest of our listeners. Even more tantalizing rewards await for those who want to sacrifice more to us. (laughs) Over 70 classic episodes are lurking deep in the private area of the library, just waiting to be heard by you. Led yourself to the library today, and you'll be ours forever. You're going to like it here, I think. <laughs> How much is it for people to enjoy the private area of the librarian, Dan? (laughs) 